Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope and the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to look at that text in just a minute here. Let me make one just brief announcement. I try not to do this very often, but I think it's significant to do it here. You'll have noticed if you've been here the last few weeks that we have been putting in the bulletin um, a notice that we are going to have membership classes um, this spring. And I say that that way because we set a date for them, um, but that date is a bit flexible. And maybe some of you saw the date, thought, can't do that night or whatever. Um, but if you have any interest at all in membership, if you, if you could indicate that to me, either to talk to me personally about it, some of you already have, or, or sign the paper in the foyer, um, even if that day doesn't work, or you might even make a notation that that date isn't going to work for you, we can, we can work around that part of it this spring. But I would really encourage you, we, we uh, try to do this on a, on a yearly basis to have membership classes. I don't think we had them last year, but this year. And if you have any interest at all, um, we, I'd really encourage you for a couple of reasons. Um, I, it, it's a way that I can get to know you better if, if you're part of that class. And, and just being a part of it doesn't mean you're locked in to have to do it. It, it will also give you an opportunity just to learn more about who we are at Richland and what our... Um, ethos is, um, how we operate, how things, we feel like the, the parameters upon which we do ministry and all of those kinds of things. So all of that will be a part of that. And so I'd love whether, whether you are certain that you would um, want to join or not, just to get to know us better and to know the church better and, and potentially um, be able to feel like you would want to connect with us on that level. So if you, if you have any interest at all, please, please um, make a note of that either personally to me or to Pastor Jason or sign up in the foyer on the, on the list that's there and we'll get back to you. This morning, we want to, as I said, turn a corner here in Romans. We have been looking at four chapters and we've come to the end of those first four chapters and now we're going to take another chunk of four chapters over the next um, period of time. We don't know how long that will take us, um, probably a substantial period of time. But really the theme of that is, as I said in our prayer time, the imperishableness of the hope that we have in the gospel and in what God has done for us in Christ. And that's really what we'll be unpacking week after week after week. This morning, as we come to chapter 5, there is a therefore and whenever there's a therefore, it's, it's pointing us backwards and, and also exhorting us onward. And that's really what happens in chapter 5 because it says therefore. And really, if you were going to kind of summarize what that therefore is talking about, you jump to the end of what we read this morning. Therefore, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Um, I hope we've already been doing that. And that we'll just continue to do it. And what it means is that we are rejoicing. We are rejoicing in the fact that God has chosen to save a people. He has chosen to save a people who by themselves were unsavable. 
I mean, that, that is the gospel. Left to ourselves, there is no hope. I, I can't say that strong enough. There is no hope left to ourselves, except God, except God. And that we could really stop there, except God. We're lost. We're lost. We can't do it. And that's the glory of the message in one sense, although it seems like that's not very glorious. But for me as a pastor, to be able to say that, but for God, it, it, it is an exciting thing to be able to declare that God, in fact, has done something, and something that only he could do. If, if I had to stand up here week after week after week and say, just do better, just a little bit better, and you can get over the threshold, that would be absolutely exhausting because that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says you can't get over the threshold no matter how hard you try and how many weeks your pastor tells you to do it. You can't get there. Only God, only God could do this. And what we rejoice in is that he has And what we've been looking at in Romans is how he did it. How he did it. And we're going to continue to look at that. Continue to unpack how God did it and what the ramifications of that are. And I pray that you are seeing it. That you are reveling in it. That you are rejoicing in it more and more. As God shows you the glory of the gospel. The glory of God in the face of Christ. That's really what the gospel is the glory of God in the face of Christ and what he has done, the apex, the apex of the glory and beauty of who God is, is what he has revealed to us in the life of his son, the life and death and resurrection of his son, that God came after us. He came after us when there was no hope if he didn't. So what we've already seen uh, we are, spent a lot of time on it. What we've already seen of that glory is that God has provided a righteousness for us who are unrighteous. A perfect righteousness. A perfect righteousness that was accomplished by both his active obedience that he lived perfectly. He lived perfectly. This morning in my Sunday school classes was another example that I had not seen until just recently when I was working on my Sunday school lesson. But in the Psalms uh, is a text that, uh, that Satan used against Jesus. Remember when he was being tempted in the wilderness? And he said, just cast yourself down from this temple and, and God will catch you, basically. I'm paraphrasing, but God will catch you. God's angels will catch you. Just do it which was a quote out of the Psalms. But just a verse or so later is a text that Satan didn't quote has reference to the fact that he will be trampled by Jesus. And the reason he didn't quote it is because had he been able to trip Jesus up to jump, be presumptuous about what God had said, which is what sin is often, Jesus would have sinned had he jumped. And therefore, the verse that follows that would not have come to fruition. Jesus would not have been able to trample the serpent's head because he would have sinned. You see, the only way he could do it 
was to live a life of perfect righteousness and never sin. Satan knew that better than we know it. He knew if he could cause Jesus to sin, all would be lost, but he didn't. He, the glory of the gospel is Jesus never sinned. He was sinless and prov- therefore accomplished a righteousness in his active obedience. And in his passive obedience, he took the penalty of our sin in the cross when he was crucified and he humbled himself, humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross, the scripture says, so that he could passively obey and take on our sin. And that's, that's the glory of that righteousness. That's the glory of the exchange that happens. He who had no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That double exchange, a glory of a righteousness from God that is by faith. That's the second part of what we spent several weeks talking about. It's by faith. It's not by trying harder. It's not by climbing a little higher up the ladder. But it's by faith. By faith, that becomes ours. As we see what he's done and and we put our faith in that, they let God be our rock and our salvation. It becomes ours by faith. And what we talked about the last time we were together was that we have to have a faith like Abraham. That's what that faith is. And I read something to you that that I want to read a part of it again because it, it, it is so good. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this about what it is to have a faith like Abraham or what it is to obtain that righteousness by faith, which is a faith like Abraham's faith, the kind of faith that Abraham had in the Old Testament. In fact, the only faith, the only faith that will connect us to what we need, and that is the righteousness of God. It's a gift from God but this is how it looks in the life of, of us. He writes this, what is the faith of Abraham? And here's how he describes it. It's the faith that believes what God says in Christ in spite of all I know about myself. All I know about myself, my past sins, my present sinfulness, in spite of the fact that I know that I still have an evil nature within me, which makes me say with Paul, in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Justifying faith is that which enables a man to believe the word of God in spite of all that, to believe the word of God in spite of knowing his own weakness, his own proneness to fall, his own proneness to fail. That is justifying faith. We must always remember this analogy of Abraham, how helpful and encouraging it is. Abraham's faith was a faith that held on to the word of God and gave glory to God in spite of all he knew to be true about himself. Now I read a little more, but let me skip over to a little later in what I read. Joan says this, this is the final word about that faith, the faith of Abraham. Abraham did not stagger at the greatness of, of the promise. 
What's that mean? How does that relate to us? I hope, I hope as what I've just said to you previous to when I started reading about the fact that there can be a double exchange, that the penalty of your sin can be put on Christ, and if it's put on Christ, it won't be put back on you. In other words, it's not a double jeopardy. God's not going to punish both Christ and you. If, if he takes your sin, he takes all of it, past, present, and future, all of it, all of the penalty of your sin goes on him. And all of the righteousness he obtained goes on you. You see what it means to stagger at the greatness of the promise? How it relates to Abraham staggering at the greatness of the promise? Abraham was beyond the age of childbearing or or causing children to come. His wife was beyond the age of bearing children, both of them. And yet God said he would have an heir. He would have an heir. He would have a son. So let me read on. Abraham did not stagger at the greatness of the promise. The devil will come to you and voices within you will say, how can I possibly say a thing like that? Look at this life which I am entering as seen on the Sermon on the Mount in the lives of the saints and the life of Jesus Christ. I am so weak. I am constantly falling. How can I? You must just say, I believe this word of the resurrection. I believe the old word spoken unto Abraham. That man was dead, as it were, physically, and so was Sarah's womb. But God told him that they would have a child. He believed God, and I believe God. I believe that though I am weak and helpless and hopeless and vile and without strength, I believe this God of the resurrection, this God who can bring to life the things that are not, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. I believe he can call into life within me a new man and a new nature and give me strength and power. This is the Christian faith. It is a faith that enables the believer to dare to believe on the bare word of God, that one day he will be faultless and blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Though this faith, through this faith, he can believe that he which hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus and can stand confidently and defy, defy everybody and everything. Possessing it will He will no longer fear death and the grave. Indeed, he no longer fears the final judgment because he knows that he has passed from the judgment into life in Christ Jesus. Don't pull back because you stagger at the wonder of the promise. In fact, go go forward. Believe God. Believe God. God when he says he who had no sin has become sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God that's the faith of Abraham and that is the only faith that will ever cause anyone to be in heaven Old Testament saint or New Testament saint we must have a faith like Abraham 
who believes that only God can do it and trust him to do so. Now, I want to go on from there. Those two things are true, and you can go back and listen to how we unpack those texts a number of times in the first four chapters. But now it goes on to say this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We continue to glory. We continue to see glory in this. And he talks about peace. And what I want to do this morning is just unpack what that peace looks like. When he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What is peace with God? What does it look like? First of all, it is peace that comes after war. You have to believe that there first was a war so that you can have this peace. And we went way back to one of the very earliest messages that we would have had in this serious series in chapter 1 and verse 18. And here's where it says there's a war. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. And it goes on to say, they knew God, but they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. We were all in that camp, all of us in this room. Now, some could still be in that camp, but the glory of the gospel is we move from that camp to a camp that says there's no longer any war going on. We are at peace with God. The gospel puts us at peace with the God we once were in opposition to, according to the text. The second thing that it, about this peace is at one time there was war. Now there's peace. But also it is a peace that God initiated. That's incredibly important for us to see. We didn't want peace. Left to ourselves... We did not want peace. We would not want peace, but God began to pursue a people for himself. He began to pursue a people to bring peace between he and them. That's what it means for God to save a people. He he lays down the weapons of war and creates a way that there can be peace. He initiates it. That's what it means when the scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave. Why did he give? That he might, as we know in the book of Romans, that he might be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did he give? Why did he give himself? So that there would be one who could justly bear the punishment so God would not be seen as unjust. And the sins that he had passed over, sins of Abraham and others who looked ahead in faith, that he wouldn't be accused of being unjust, but that Christ could bear all of that sin. He could bear all of that sin so he could be just and justifier. He therefore then could give them 
his accomplished righteousness and justify them. There, that's what it says. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That he could justify a people who would look to him in faith. Thirdly, this is, this is a key point because I think oftentimes this is where Satan will come and try to confuse us where he will come and battle against even those who are already in the faith. You may have experienced it, but it's the idea that this peace, you must see it, this peace is not a subjective feeling. That's not what it means when it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, it may result in that, and probably should result in that, but that is not what it means when it says they have peace with God. It is not a subjective feeling, but a concrete reality despite the fact that feelings may fluctuate. It is not just a peaceful feeling. You can get a peaceful feeling other ways. The problem is it won't last. And you can't base your faith on that. The scripture says it is peace. Peace with God. The war is over. You no longer are, as the scripture says, at enmity with God. If you've been justified by faith in the fact that the double exchange applies to you. Scripture says, since we have been justified, it's past tense, something that happened in the past, because something happened in the past, in a moment in time, when we put our faith in Christ, we were justified. The peace has come. The war is over. We have peace with God. It's not merely hoping that we will get it one day. We have it. We have been given it in a moment in time. Therefore, we can rejoice in it. You see, that's where the feeling starts to come when you really realize that it's been accomplished. That when you trust Christ, you trust the fact that at the moment you put your faith in him, you were justified. The peace treaty has been signed and you no longer in enmity with God. The scripture says there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation to those who are in, past tense, Christ Jesus. How do we get in Christ Jesus? By faith in the double transaction that I talked about. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. Now, how does living that out look? For, for a few minutes here, how does living that out look like? What, what's it look like in the life of a believer? This is the way I think it lives out and works out in our lives. It, it, first of all, happens by a man's mind coming to be at rest in the sense that intellectual rest, in, in understanding the basis upon which that peace has come. He is a man who begins to see how God, though it is incredibly amazing, and he marvels at it, how God 
can justify the ungodly. That's, that's what the gospel is about, that he justifies the ungodly. He knows God is holy. He knows that he is not. We just instinctively know that if we really stop to think about it. God is holy and we're not. And he sees how the death of Christ reconciles those two things without God violating his justice. It's why it's so important that we spent so long in those first four chapters, particularly as we came to the end of of chapter three and four and began to look at the gospel, look at all that God has accomplished. There, There is a dimension, though we don't have to know everything, but this this whole idea of, of peace with God comes as, as God opens our understanding to see the things that we have talked about. We begin to see them. We begin to see what God has done. And then secondly, it, it works its way out in the fact that as we see that, that we come to know that the God loves us. He loves us in spite of the fact that we are yet sinners. That's the key point. If you can somehow try to convince yourself that you've and can and do live at a level here, which is really deception, but at a level where you're worthy of God's love, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about. And that's dangerous because you begin to rest on your ability to live at that level rather than on Christ. But when you really begin to see that God loves you in spite of the fact that you are still a sinner, though a saved sinner, that's when you really are starting to grasp it. This is what the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, for by a single offering... A single offering, the offering of Christ, the the double transaction that I talked about, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being, where he uses there, sanctified, but being perfected. In other words, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being perfected. What the idea of being perfected those who still haven't arrived, who still sin at times. So this faith is not a faith that rests on the fact that we're performing better now and God accepts me, but that God loves me even when I am not performing well. That he loves me. He loves me even as I continue to sin at times. Thirdly, the third thing, the way it works out is that a person who possesses his faith knows how to answer the accusation of his own conscience. True saving faith, the faith that puts it at peace with God, is is someone who begins to understand how to 
answer the accusations of his own conscience. How can God love me? How can God love me? You hear the accusations, don't you? How can, how can he? Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can answer the accusations of your conscience. Fourthly, you can answer the accusations of the enemy of your soul. You can answer the accusations of the enemy of your soul. There was the Puritan, John Newton. You've probably heard of him. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. But before John Newton wrote Amazing Grace and a lot of other songs like Amazing Grace, he was a vile man. There's probably nothing that you have done that John Newton didn't do. And more. He was in the slave trade and uh, we have all seen horrid accounts of that trade and the things that happened and they're just unimaginable. And he was in the thick of it. What did he do? John Newton came to faith. He came to possess the faith of Abraham and put his faith in Christ and the double transaction, the righteousness from God, all of that. What did John Newton do when those accusations of Satan came to him? When those pictures of what he had done and been involved in came to him? This is what he did. He wrote hymns like this. Be thou my shield and hiding place that sheltered near thy side I may my fierce accuser face. He, he described it, his fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Thou hast died. That's how he faced his accuser. One who possesses the faith of Abraham knows how to face his conscience but he also knows how to face his fierce accuser. Because those things come to us as believers. They come. They come. They come from places sometimes when you don't expect them. A few weeks ago, something came to me from way back when I was a teenager. And you know they come. You know they come. How do we face them? Here's how we don't face them. We don't say, I'm a good man. We don't remind God of our past or even our present. Our only way to face our accuser is to do what Newton did when he faced his fierce accuser and tell him, thou hast died. Thou hast died. Christ is my hope. That's what the faith of Abraham is like. That's what it is to, to live in the reality that we are at peace with God. Even when our conscience accuses us, even when we still sin, even when the fierceness of the accuser comes against us. One of the things that the cross accomplished was that it stripped Satan's only legitimate weapon from his hand 
against believers, against those who possess the faith of Abraham. There's only one legitimate weapon that Satan can wield against us. And the weapon that he can wield against us and be successful in is unforgiven sin. If, if you have unforgiven sin in your life, which means you have not trusted Christ to be your sin bearer and to have taken the punishment for that and therefore it's forgiven in his punishment, then Satan can wield that against you. Successfully. And he will for countless thousands upon thousands and millions of people one day. He will wield it successfully. They're guilty. Because their sin is unforgiven. But the beauty of the gospel is he cannot wield it successfully against a believer. Because Christ has taken it. You see, that's the glory of the gospel that it was punished in Christ and, and God would be unjust to then hold it to our account as well. God is just and justifier of those who have faith in him because he has borne the punishment. Let that sink into you today if Satan is wielding that weapon against you. Now, if he's rightfully wielding it, what do you do? Run to Christ. Put your faith in all that Christ has done. Today, right now in this moment, say, I trust Christ to be my sin bearer and I take his righteousness right now. It can happen in a moment. And if you've already done that, you just do the same thing. You run back to Christ and remind yourself he has borne it. He has borne it. And though Satan will attempt He cannot successfully, he cannot successfully wield it against me. Everybody has to do that at times in our lives. We have to know how to fight. We have to know how to fight the fight of faith. And that's how we do it. Now, let me say one last thing and then we're going to close this morning. All of those things I've talked about is what it looks like to have the faith of Abraham and to know that we're at peace with God because we've been justified by faith. But the question this morning is, what do you do in your life? What do you do? Do you you continue to rest in the fact that you have peace with God when you fall into sin? When you fall into sin, maybe it was this past week. What do you do then? Do you still believe the gospel? Do you still believe the gospel? Do you still run to Christ and rest in that? And rest in the fact that he bore your sin and he gives you his righteousness? Do you? I say to you, you can. You can. You can, and you have to learn. You have to learn that this glorious promise, this glorious promise is that glorious. Now, some will say, that's dangerous for you to say that. It's 
dangerous for me to end that way this morning and say, what do you do when you fall into sin? Do you still rest in the promise? Do you still know you have peace with God? Do you still hold on to that promise? You're right, it is dangerous. But Paul knew that danger, and he did it anyway. In fact, in fact, the gospel is so radical and so glorious that if you're not accused of that, at some point, you're probably not declaring the gospel. Paul was accused in chapter 5. We'll come to it a bit later and we'll say more about it, but look at verse 15. Skip to 5.15. And this is what he says. What then? What then? What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? In other words, shall we sin that grace may abound? Paul says, God forbid, no. But he was accused. He was accused of that. I say to you this morning, I say to you this morning, this gospel is for everyone. Everyone. That's, that was the whole argument of chapter four, where he kept coming against the arguments of the Jews again and again and again because they wanted to add something to it. They, they would not accept this doctrine. They would not accept this idea of a righteousness from God. They, they had to add things to it, and Paul came after it again and again and again. I hope this morning what you see in that is that this gospel is glorious. It, it, it doesn't limit anyone in the sense of the message going forth. In other words, you, you don't have to get your life in a certain place, in a certain order, cleaned up, if you will, in a certain way so that then you are a candidate for this gospel. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. In other words, there, there aren't the haves and the have-nots. of These people are ready to hear it because they've done certain things and these people are not ready to hear it because they haven't done those things. It's available to all, all who will believe, all who will put their faith in the glorious work of Christ on the cross. You see, that's why if I had to tell you You've got to prepare yourself so you can have this. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. The the text again, let me end with it, and then we're going to sing. Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. You have peace. If you put your hope in Christ, you have peace. And nothing will be able to take that away from you, that peace with God. Satan will attempt, he will try, he will bring accusation, but we have to learn how to fight the fight of faith to, to put him back and to live in the gloriousness of the promise of peace with God, the reality of peace with God, not something to work our way into, 
but a living reality if we put our faith in Christ. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you.